I'm your host, Dr. John Armstrong on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Broadcasting from the floor of this year's annual American Medical Association House of Delegates meeting in Chicago. As always, there's been a great deal of news made at this meeting, and we're here to bring you up to date on the happenings. First, I spoke with a variety of physicians about a number of public health issues. Dr. Coy Irvin, a family physician from Pensacola, Florida, brought a resolution before the House of Delegates regarding the adverse health effects of the Gulf oil spill. What we're seeing, you know, we do have oil on the beach. We do have some small amounts, but the beaches are still open and still doing business. And people are still enjoying it. But the problem is, is the fear. What's happened is because of the daily, daily drumbeat of it's coming, it's coming. No one knows what's really going to happen and how long we're going to go through this. Patients and the citizens are getting very worried about the health effects. So we thought it was time to address that. And how are these health effects being addressed through this resolution at the American Medical Association? Well, it's important that a couple of things. One is we need to let our patients know that we're concerned too and that we're learning as much as we can about the effects and what could happen to try to be able to take care of them and reassure them that everything is going to be watched closely. The second thing is we're going to be doing studies on the oil and the health department, the state health department, the CDC are all doing this together. And so we're trying to coordinate that with the docs so that that information gets out. But to really study what's happening with the dispersants, what's happening with this prolonged exposure to heavy crude oil as opposed to some of the things that have happened in the past where they come and go. This is a long-term exposure, so it's going to be an interesting time for everyone. So this really does go beyond concerns about the effect on Florida tourism. This is really about health concerns within the communities that live along the coast of Florida. Correct. I mean, think about it. You've got anxiety, of course, the worries about what's to come and not knowing. You've got concern about depression, people losing their jobs, people losing their livelihoods, people's way of life being threatened. Those are just some of the basic stuff that are going to occur. Then what does happen if you get exposed? What happens if you're smelling benzene every day? A lot of people, just because they smell it, they begin to have problems and symptoms. They may not be causing major problems, but to them it's important. We need to be able to show that the docs understand the concerns, that they understand the science behind it, and they can help them. There's lots of rumors, there's lots of concerns. There are people saying, well, if you smell it, you're going to get sick. Well, not necessarily, but those are the kind of things that are out there. People are beginning to hear that. Lots of disparate voices. We need to bring it all together in one place. Next, I discussed guidelines for mammography with the chairman of the American Medical Association Council on Science and Public Health, Dr. Al Head. Well, a lot of discussion was on the breast examination and mammography. That got a lot of debate. We're still trying to find the best science for our patients, and that'll be continuing over the next few years. And heard a further comment from Dr. John Vassell, chief medical officer for the Swedish Health System in Seattle, Washington. There was an issue regarding guidelines and specifically around mammograms for women aged 40 to 50. And I thought we came to some very good resolution. There was some very good discussion regarding how physicians can look at guidelines, choose the evidence-based guidelines, and make a decision based on what is right for the patient. Then I got a quick comment from Dr. David Rossman a radiologist in Massachusetts, regarding the effect of smoking in public housing. I think the most important piece of policy that we passed was to enact legislation to oppose smoking in multi-unit housing. If the AMA can continue to protect the public health that way, we should be very, very proud. 
Dr. Al Head, the chairman of the Council on Science and Public Health for the American Medical Association, then offered a comment about personalized medicine. One of the more exciting manuscripts or papers we presented at this meeting was on personalized medicine. One of the things we want to emphasize is physicians need to continue to be educated on the terms and the science associated with this so they can better help their patients. From the future of personalized medicine to the future of medical education, I spoke with Dr. Ken Simon. I think there are two major challenges, and the first off is, I think, the debt level that the students are having to undergo as a result of going to medical school. They now graduate about $180,000, $200,000 in debt on average, and that's a significant uh, barrier to proceeding. I think that's one issue. I think the other issue is looking at team-based learning, team-based education, so that we're, that's going to be the next horizon for us, as it were. We are practicing in teams. There's doctors, there's nurses, there's PTs and PAs and geneticists and what have you. And so we need to change our model a little bit and make it more integrated than what it's been for the last hundred years. You've touched on how things need to change, but where have we been in the last hundred years and where are you looking ahead to the future? Sure. When Flexner wrote his report, he was basing it largely on the Johns Hopkins model, which was a two plus two. So two years of basic science as you had that foundation and then two years of clinical work. And so that's great, and that worked well. But now we're seeing, you know, you can't apply, our students aren't remembering their basic sciences, and they're not able to apply it as well in the clinical years. And so we're looking at more of an integrated educational experience, such that they'll have more clinical work in the first couple of years and actually bring back basic sciences into the clinical years. And maybe we'll lose that traditional coursework so we don't have just a biochemistry course. We don't have just a, you know, histology course, but we have more of an integrated fashion of teaching. Can you speak specifically about the most important issues in medical education? I think, as I said, the debt. I'm also, I think that the number of positions available. So now we've increased class sizes across the country, and we've increased the number of medical schools across the country. But there's been no increase in the number of PGY-1 residency positions. So this year we actually graduated 179 students who were unable to find a position in the match. Bear in mind, as I said there earlier, they're $180,000 in debt on average. This is not a good thing. So I think that is another huge issue that this country needs to solve because nobody's looking at the sizes of the residency programs. The only funder of graduate medical education right now is the federal government, and I think we need to look at how we do that. And I think that's another big issue for us, obviously, to face. From medical education to the practice of medicine, I spoke with a variety of leaders about emerging health policy. First, Mark Rieger, a consultant to the American Medical Association's National Health Insurance Report Card. The report card is a score on the performance of commercial and some government payers, performance on 17 metrics with the intent to drive improvement in the administrative processes. How have the national health insurers responded to this reporting of their performance? Clearly, payers have engaged. Now that they know what they're being measured on, they know where to focus their energies. And how do you see the National Health Insurer Report Card helping doctors help patients? Today, nearly 50% of the doctor's expense associated with submitting a claim and receiving payment is spent on rework. That rework is a function of lack of transparency, ambiguity, and inaccuracies in the process. Next, I spoke with outgoing American Medical Association President Dr. Jim Rohack about the outcomes from the health system reform law and the continuing problem with sustainable Medicare physician payment. 
the health system reform legislation that was passed and signed really allows our nation to evolve to make sure that patients have health insurance coverage. And yet it's readily acknowledged that coming out of a legislative process, you rarely get perfection. What are the remaining challenges that you see for the American Medical Association and the patients of America? The thing that frustrated most of America's physicians is the failure of Congress to deal with a flawed Medicare payment formula. And this formula penalizes doctors for doing what's right for patients. This formula was designed back in 1997 when much care was done as a hospital inpatient. Now, many of that care is done as an outpatient. And in addition, we have new technologies, new ways to care for people. And as a result of that, this formula says as you provide more care for Medicare patients, we are going to reduce your payment that next year. Right now, physicians will face a 21% decrease in their payment for caring for not only Medicare patients, but our military families on TRICARE. That's a tragedy. That's a problem that I think, as I've listened to this House of Delegates over the last few days, it's very clear that their frustration is compounded by America's physicians over Congress's inability to do what's right for Medicare beneficiaries and military families. Well, Dr. Rohack, as spokesperson for the American Medical Association during the past year, is there anything at this point that you say, maybe I would have done that differently? We clearly did not have the ability to change the national dialogue when it got into partisanship. The terms that were being used, regretfully, shifted what we should be focused on is how are we going to care for the uninsured to a national debate over political parties. And rather than having a system that says when you treat their diabetes and when you give them screening tests, that increases the volume of service and we're going to cut your pay. And I think that the deficit of a nation is only going to get worse if the nation's health is worse. And we need to have a healthy population to be productive to compete in a global economy. We believe, as America's physicians, these are the steps we need to make in the 21st century. I also heard a comment from Dr. Melissa Gerritsen from the American Academy of Pediatrics. I hope that both physicians and our patients realize that change, while it's scary, can be a positive thing if we manage it well and we work together to make changes to things that are just onerous. I hope that we have a new system for paying for Medicare services so that our physicians and our patients can continue to take care of one another and get the care they want from the physicians they want to see. Next, I spoke with Federal Trade Commission Chairman John Lebowitz about the interface between the FTC and American medicine. From the competition perspective, we enforce the antitrust laws. And so sometimes when physicians get together to set prices, it's permissible, for example, if they're part of a partnership. Sometimes when they set prices, it crosses the line. But the other thing that we do is we try to work with doctors. They may send us a proposal to try to tell them, you know, this is the way in which you're proceeding. doesn't seem to violate the antitrust laws. You ought to go ahead. We want to work with uh, the AMA and doctors and physicians groups in a whole variety of areas to make sure that patients have more choices and that you guys aren't unduly burdened by government. Many physicians are concerned about the seeming monopoly power of healthcare insurers. And what role does the FTC have in oversight of the health insurance industry? Well, 
That's a great question. Unfortunately, the answer is zero, and it's for two reasons. One is because of the McCarran-Ferguson Act, which is an antitrust exemption for insurers. I'm an opponent of the McCarran-Ferguson Act. I'd like to see Congress repeal it. And two is because in the 1970s, Congress passed a law that prohibits us from even writing reports about the insurance industry. And so we'd like to get out from under that prohibition or that restriction, and we're in the process of trying to do that legislatively. The biggest area for us in healthcare competition is probably trying to stop what we call pay-for-delay pharmaceutical settlements, where brand-name pharmaceutical companies literally pay off their generic competitors to stay out of the market, and consumers are left holding the bag. We believe it costs about $3.5 billion a year to American consumers, and that's embedded in insurance costs. And if you're not insured, and there are still 40 million-plus Americans who are uninsured, that means you're paying a lot more for a brand-name drug than for a generic competitor, and we think these deals are unconscionable. And we are working both through the court system to try to get a case to the Supreme Court to stop them, and legislatively, we're working with members of Congress who want to stop this practice as well. Many physicians are frustrated by the red flag rule. And what can the FTC do to lessen the onerous effects of that rule in the physician practice? Well, we're trying to do a couple of things in that regard. First of all, we're working with members of Congress to try to rewrite the rule so that it is more balanced and it isn't overly broad. I think most members of Congress recognize that the original Red Flex law was overly broad. Second, because Congress is working through a modification, we have suspended enforcement of the Red Flags rule through the end of the year. We're hopeful they'll get it fixed, and we can all move on. Next, I heard a few thoughts from Dr. Lisa Egbert, board member of the American Medical Political Action Committee, AMPAC, and a practicing obstetrician-gynecologist from Ohio about the importance of physician engagement in organized medicine. I think the one thing that the physicians out there in the real world are concerned about is, is the AMA really representing us? And I think the answer to that is a wholehearted yes, we are. We are trying our best. Health system reform has been a difficult process, but we know that our leadership is trying hard to fight for both the physicians and the patients of America. As we look to the year ahead, American medicine is at a crossroads. How will medicine shape the health system reform laws through regulation? What will the 2010 congressional midterm elections mean for health system reform? Can American healthcare achieve increased access, better quality, and reduced cost? Real questions remain, the answers to which will affect patients' lives and the ability of physicians to care for them. You have been listening to reporting from the annual American Medical Association House of Delegates meeting on ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. John Armstrong. You can listen to more of our coverage and download podcasts at ReachMD.com. As always, thank you for listening.